0: I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much.
1: It's interesting, too. It's like, how did we even get to this point where saying to our partners, which the whole reason we're with them is because we want them. Like, how did it then get converted and perverted into like being humiliating to say, Hey, I, I want you. I want to be with you. I want your attention, right? So it's like we, we participate in our own destruction. And I think paradoxically enough, that's such an empowering and relieving message.
0: It isn't about being perfect. It's about being better. Hello, my name is Dr. Stephanie Stima, and I host expert discussions with thought leaders in all facets of health, including nutrition, fitness, hormones, stress management, performance, recovery, longevity, health span and energy production. On this show, we discuss complex science, but then we also alchemize it into actionable everyday living. The ultimate goal with the show is to assist you in making informed decisions about your health and to catapult you into being the hero in your own life. Hello, Bettys. Welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Today, we are talking all about emotional power with Dr. Julia Deganji. Dr. Deganji is a neuropsychologist who completed her residency at Harvard Medical School, Boston University School of Medicine, and the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs. She has nearly two decades of experience studying the connection between our brains and our behavior. Dr. Deganji has worked with leaders at the White House Press Office, global companies, international NGOs, and the U.S. Special Forces. Her specialty is understanding stress, trauma, and resilience, which is also informed by her work in international development and humanitarian aid. And as you might guess, we are talking all about our brains, and how that informs our behavior. Dr. Daganji has a new book out, it's called Energy Rising, The Neuroscience of Leading with Emotional Power, and it is all about understanding our emotional power and our emotional pain. And we talk about some of these codes that she has developed over the course of her tenure, and this is going to be an incredible conversation for anybody, whether you are a parent, you are a partner, you are someone who leads a team at work, or you are in a team and engage in a team, how you can up level, let's say your emotional energetics so that you can lead with love with certainty. And we can also think about developing our relationship, not only in the present, but also what these relationships might look like in the future. I had such a phenomenal conversation with Dr. Daganji. I hope that you are going to enjoy this as much as I did. Before we get to the interview, I just wanted to read a recent review from the podcast. This is coming in from KimmyLove74 from Apple Podcasts in the US. She says, this is so insightful. Dr. Stephanie is emotionally intelligent, insightful, and well-educated. She's willing to share her knowledge and experience to help us all be better. Love her practical and relatable approach. Well, KimmyLove, right back at you. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show. And if you are getting any value from this podcast... One of the f- the best ways and free ways, really, that you can support our work is by leaving a five star rating and a review. And if I see it and I love it, I'll read it out loud on one of these intros like this. So, without further delay and without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Julia Deganji. <laughs> I am a huge fan of the Bio-Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next also building recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. Free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D R I N K L M N T dot com forward slash D R E S T I M A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. Dr. Julia Deganji, I am thrilled to welcome you to the Better Podcast. Welcome.
1: I'm so glad to be here, Dr. Stephanie. Thank you for having me.
0: Yes. And we were just talking in the pre-chat before we got started about why I'm so excited about this book and to have this conversation with you. And, you know, I was saying to you that I think as a, as a, as a woman, at least my messaging for driven women, I'll say women who are very action-oriented, achievement-oriented, driven, um, the messaging at least to me is, be as, as stoic as you can right so your emotions are your weakness try to ignore them at all costs and i really appreciated throughout the book you uh, your w- what we're doing is we're talking about your new book energy rising i should probably say that um and we're really talking about the neuroscience of emotional power and actually how we can harness this energy which is i've always heard and certainly redirect me here if i'm incorrect but Emotions have always been explained to me as energetic motion, so E motion. Um, Mm -hmm. So maybe we'll start with the proper definition. Maybe that's just a layman's term um, understanding of emotion. But what is the scientifically accurate way to think about emotions?
1: I mean, to put it in sort of the most scientific terms, emotions are quite literally neuroelectrical, neuroelectrical impulses that create sensations in your body that then guide thinking and behaving. I think a really useful heuristic for people to really understand emotions. Cause I think sometimes like when we get into the science too much, it gets really abstract and I'm very much committed to just a little interesting story. When um, Harvard business review approached me to write the book, I really sort of had to give it some thought, like, did I want to do it? And then if so, what did I want? And I wanted really two things. I wanted energy rising to be beautiful and I wanted it to be practical my editor was like, that's sort of a strange combination, but let's see if we can pull it off. So I really want this to sort of like land in people's lives. So I think a great way to think about emotions are as the Google Maps of your life. So you have these sacred, quite literal neural electrical signals that are guiding you through your life. So it's like, turn left at the next intersection and exit the relationship or change the job or start the business or stay in the marriage or don't stay in the marriage. So it's like we're getting all of this feedback through our nervous systems. And to be honest, I think a lot of us, we come to the intersection and, you know, the Google emotional maps are going, turn left, turn left. And what do we do? We turn right. We're like, ignore that. Now you do that a couple of times in your life, or a couple of times, even a month or a week. It's fine. But we put ourselves in chronic positions of pain when we totally reject this supremely intelligent neurologic guidance system, right? So instead of listening to this emotional energy, I'm acting almost totally against it. And then, the, you know, people love to say, we kind of talked a little bit about this off camera, is like people love to say emotions are so confusing, I don't think emotions are confusing at all. I think they're incredibly simple. And I think when we really start to understand them, we can live these real kind of satisfying and healed lives. If I am consistently ignoring basically information that my body is giving to me, the consequence is very logical. I feel exhausted. I feel burnt out. I feel numb. I feel bored. I feel depressed. I feel anxious. So there's this incredible homecoming, this real emotional ascension, this real emotional healing. I don't just mean that sort of metaphorically. I mean it kind of neurobiologically when we come back to this internal guidance system.
0: Beautiful. Beautifully said. I would say, you know, the, the audience that listens to this show, we have men and women, but primarily women sort of in that perimenopausal, let's say, uh, demographic like 35 to call it 55 women in particular have this intuitive prowess. At least I've I've seen this in clinical practice. I've experienced this where, you know, you you said, you know, the Google Maps is saying turn right and leave the marriage or turn left and, you know, jump to this career or take the risk or what have you. And I think that there can be uh when to your point around ignoring it. You can ignore it once or twice, but then the accumulation of residue uh, and consequences that happen from continuously ignoring that intuitive signal, those little whispers that are coming to you in in the form of emotion or thoughts um, can have dire consequences. And in the book, you talk about this idea of emotional pain, which I think we're sort of bridging right now. And And I would love for you to speak to the pain that we are willing to inflict on ourselves, this pain of self-betrayal. Can you Mm. speak to that?
1: Mm. I get chilled every time people talk about it. Yes. Okay. So I get, I have been put on this planet to talk about this. So I have a lot to say. So if I start saying too much, you will rein me in. But effectively, it is like this. So let me first say that I'm a neuropsychologist, which means I'm a clinical psychologist with specialized expertise in the brain. And in that, my area of specialization is trauma. So I'm a, I'm a trauma expert and I've worked with extraordinary forms of human suffering. I am very aware that the world does horrific, depraved, unthinkable things to us. Okay? So that exists. In addition to the things that people do to us, all the way from the, from the most traumatic to just the most annoying... There is a very, you know, this is kind of an exciting moment to be in the world of emotional power and mental health and well-being. I've been doing this work for a long time. And the world is having really powerful conversations, which is incredible. But there is one thing that I think is sort of glaringly missing. Do other people hurt us? Yes. But one of the most significant sources of pain in our life comes from the moments that I am willing to divide myself from my own energy from the moments that i am willing to divide myself from myself what do i mean by this if you think about your brain you kind of ha- it has three engines that's driving you through your life it has an engine of feeling it has an engine of thinking and it has an engine of behaving great so i think i behave and i feel okay Now, I don't know the first damn thing about engineering, but imagine I was going to build a plane and I was like, hey, guys, I have a great idea. I'm going to build this plane. It's going to have three really powerful engines and I'm going to have two engines going in one direction and then I'm going to have the other engine driving the plane in the exact opposite direction. People would be like, Julia, definitely quit your day job. That's the dumbest idea ever. Okay, so logically, we see the error in that immediately. We don't even have to be an aeronautical engineer. But most of us, to a very intense degree, are feeling one thing and then dividing that engine from the other engines. Let me give you some examples. I feel exhausted, Dr. Stephanie. I'm exhausted. What do I do? I overwork. I'm feeling like I really want to speak up. I have something that's really on my heart and on my mind. I want to speak up. I have something I want to create. I want to, I want to speak up. What do I do? I keep my mouth shut. You know what I'm doing now? I really want to work on my boundaries. I'm going to really start honoring my sacred. No, I'm going to start saying no more often. What do I do when the opportunity comes around? I say Yes. In all of those moments, I have quite neurobiologically divided my emotional energy from the energy that powers my behaving. And in all of those moments, I have shown myself, maybe I'm not consciously aware of it, but most of what your brain does is unconscious anyways, I have shown myself that the dangerous person in the room is me. We're having a very interesting conversation culturally right now about psychological safety. There is no doubt in anyone's mind that the brain absolutely needs safety in order to be able to function optimally. So that's not a, a, you know in question. But here's the thing, the piece that's missing. How in the world, how in the world is it gonna matter if the entire world is giving safe to me? Basically, you know, giving safety to me, if I'm willing. To disregard my own emotions, if I'm willing to disregard my own energy, if I'm willing to disregard my own desires and wants. It does not matter because I am showing myself that I am willing to be my most powerful betrayer.
0: So essentially you can have a world that's saying, here is a safe environment for you to be yourself. But if you are constantly betraying yourself, as you as you've mentioned, You will never feel safe in your body. You will never feel safe to do the right thing because you are constantly at odds with yourself.
1: Correct. And here's the even like, let's take it a couple of steps deeper. Even if someone gives me permission, so say my boss calls me and says, hey, you know what, Julia? You look really haggard. Why don't you stay home and sleep today? And I go, that's great. I'm going to do that as a matter of fact. I might feel okay on that day, but now my well-being is contingent on somebody else's permission. Right. So the sensation that that creates is an enduring sense of anxiety. Are you going to protect me now? Are you going to protect me now? Are you going to give me what I need now? Are you going to give me? Can you, can you kind of hear the anxiety in that? Again, there's kind of this math to our emotional lives. It is no one else, and a constant
0: delegation as well—a constant external delegation. Yeah, sorry to interrupt you. I just wanted to point.
1: No, so I mean, please do interrupt. So I do a lot of work. My fundamental area of expertise is this idea of stress and relationships. So you know, when most of our stress and trauma happens in the context of relationships, I do a lot of work with couples. So if I could kind of, and I'm in my own marriage, so I certainly understand how all of this feels if I kind of distill the cry of the couple down to one thing it's really this people come and they sit before me either on a real couch or a virtual couch and they are saying she doesn't love me and then he's saying he no 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 he doesn't love me she doesn't respect me he doesn't respect right sometimes I'll work with same-sex couples heterosexual couples it doesn't matter it's saying you're not giving me the emotional energy I need Now, I'll say to the couples, that makes brilliant sense. You know, you're not paying me enough attention. You're not respecting me. You're not, you don't love me, right? That makes perfect sense. We need those things from our partners, again, unquestionably. Let me just table that for one second and ask you another question. Tell me the the profound ways that you respect yourself. Give me some examples of ways that you show yourself deep attunement. Profound examples of self-love. And almost always, people don't have an answer to that question. Now, this is not, a, this is, this is not shameful at all. This is an incredible moment for healing because how can we heal unless we know what part of the problem is? How in the world can I expect somebody else to meet my own attentional needs when I'm not even meeting them? And in most cases, we're not even able to articulate them. Right? So I need to be able to say, Here's actually what I'm saying. Here's how I'm participating in my in my own emotional ascension, and then what's now up for debate between me and my partner, me and my child, me and my team, right? So we don't take possession of our emotional energy, and so we think it's other people's job to kind of plug that hole in the cup. Okay, the problem with this is you can't make the math on that to work because if if you imagine emotional energy as like that, we, we're all carrying these cups, okay. And we all need some water in our cups. Now, based on what it means to be human, is we all have holes in our cups. Some of us have just a couple of holes in our cups, some of us have massive holes in our cups, but nobody has a perfectly intact cup because that's not what it means to be human. So we're so some of our, our goodness, our, our energy feels like it's seeping out of us. So we're all running around saying, I need these external people to plug my holes. I need you to talk to me in a certain way. I need you to look at me. I need you to tell me how sexy I am all the time. I need you to only want to spend time with me. I need you to be available when I need you to be available. The problem with that, though, is that it's totally unsustainable because everybody else has their own cup. So now you're running around trying to plug up my cup. I'm trying to run around plug your cup. I got to plug my kid's cup. The boss has got to. It's a mess. So if I could really start to have a total power conversation with myself and say, what are the ways I could take radical responsibility? Not in a tisk tisk, you know, I, I went to Catholic school as a kid, not as like the nuns are coming at you with a ruler, but as this kind of by the way, I'm I'm very happy to be Catholic. I love my faith, but you know, anyways.
0: Um, you're just you're just drawing from your experiences. Yes. Yes. yes that's so, fine.
1: you know, if we could figure out like how are the ways That I could give myself all this emotional spaciousness, start enjoying my relationships more, start enjoying my partnerships more, start enjoying my life more, because I'm not so desperate to get my holes plugged up.
0: By someone else.
1: By someone else, correct. Mm
0: -hmm. This point, really, if listeners only get to this part of the podcast, (laughs) I think think we've done our job because this self-aid Yes, we've we've done our job because this self agency, uh, this idea of taking as you to use your words, radical responsibility, I think is really important. And you talk about this idea of become, you know, expanding your emotional pain. So in the book, there's these eight codes that you describe. One of them is expanding, pardon me, expanding your emotional power, which is, um, if I understand it correctly, sort of the flip side, if you will, of emotional pain. So you talk in the book about pain and power sort of being like two sides of the same coin, And you talk about this idea of who do I become in my moments of emotional pain? Like when I'm expecting my husband to tell me that I'm sexy all the time, when I'm expecting absolute obedience from my children, when I'm expecting, you know, my boss to say, wow, you are the best employee I have ever had (laughs) or and on and on and on. Right. Um, so can you talk about how we might begin first we can talk a little bit about what emotional power is and give some words and definition to that but then how we might think about expanding or transmuting maybe the emotional pain that we have into uh emotional power
1: absolutely so if i had one um i really believe that i was put on this planet to talk about emotional pain and emotional power i have been asked previously to do you know, public facing work. So, you know, TV programs and stuff like this. And I've always said, no, I just, I I like to say I'm a Midwest academic who likes to go to two parties a year. And then I like to spend the rest of my time, like in my office thinking, taking care of my patients and my clients. I, I was put on this planet to talk about emotional pain and emotional power. Okay. This is the premise of energy rising. Every single thing you want in this lifetime, is on the other side of the feelings you swear you cannot feel, okay? If you want more self-confidence, you must. There's a math to this, and I hope that feels very organizing and clarifying to people because I know when we're in the midst of our emotional storms, it can seem almost hopeless, like it's just all so overwhelming. I cannot get to greater self-confidence if I don't understand how to more powerfully work with the energy of doubt, I cannot get to greater peace if I'm not able to navigate the energy of uncertainty more powerfully. I cannot get to deeper connection and intimacy if I am unwilling to have a new relationship with the the energy of of rejection. These things go together the way the the day and the night, the dusk and the dawn go together. Now, this does not mean... Okay, so I'm going to become more self-confident by being doubtful all the time. Absolutely not. You're passing through almost like this um this energetic portal. You're birthing something. No one's like, "You know what I want? I want to have a kid and so I'm just going to like I'm just going to give birth for 18 like I'm just going to be in the process of birth." It's like absolutely not. And you know, I know that women have very different experiences with their birth. I, I found birth to be quite traumatic. I was like, I, do, can, I still cannot understand how that thing came out of my vagina, but here we are. So, but it's over, right? And it was this incredibly expansive process, both literally and metaphorically. So we need to pass through these moments of resistance in order to get more powerful. What is also interesting to me is that we understand this beautifully, beautifully on the physical health side. If I want to get physically stronger Never once has it occurred to me the way I'm going to get stronger is to binge watch seven episodes of Love is Blind on my couch and eat a lot of hot Cheetos.
0: Or avoid the gym.
1: Right, exactly. Yeah. Now, there might be days when I don't want to go to the gym, mm. but I'm not confused. I'm not like, oh, my biceps should actually be getting stronger. Life is hopeless. Why is this happening to me? I, okay, it's a whole it's a whole different problem set. Today I don't feel like it is a different thing that I'm confused.
0: Yeah, that's a motivation versus discipline issue. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: And so I think a lot of times when we think about our, our becoming emotionally more willing to be creative, to be connected, to be authentic, there absolutely is some emotional resistance in there. And it's our willingness to engage thoughtfully about the emotional resistance that makes us stronger. That's literally what emotional intelligence is. Emotional intelligence is, can I think intelligently about my emotions? Here's the other thing. I I talk a lot in the book about leadership, but I talk about it. It's like, not like I'm a person running a 40,000 person company. We're all leaders of our own life. The only question is how well are we leading them, right? So in the moments where things are just working, and I hope we all have plenty of moments like this, when the kids are just listening, when the things are just working, when the schedules are just running on time, that's incredible, But that really requires not much at all of my own power, of my own authority, of my own influence, of my own energy over my own life. My leadership is entirely defined in the moments when I hit emotional resistance. Who do I become, to use your example earlier, when my kids are not listening to me? Who do I become when I really want my husband's attention and affection and he is not available for a lot of reasons? Who do I become when the people on social media aren't doing it the way I think that they should be doing it? And if you think about what's happening in these moments, there people love to say it's about the situation. This this is another massive shift of energy rising that I think is so empowering and so healing. We waste a lot of our lives thinking too much about situations. The thing that Mary said to me on Tuesday, the thing that they did to me, the thing they didn't do, the thing my mother, the thing. Now these situations certainly don't feel good but that's the point there you have no situation that bothers you until you have a bad feeling about it if you started for example insulting me on this podcast and i really didn't care you know you're like this is you're the worst guest ever and this is so boring and i'm going to end this interview right now if i really didn't feel stressed or humiliated or embarrassed and i wasn't just dissociating or i wasn't intoxicated there would be no problem All of our, every single problem in our life based on how the brain works is necessarily underpinned by emotional pain. We spend way too, we waste time talking about situations when what we should be doing is focusing on how do we work with the emotional energy.
0: So what I, what I hear you saying, um, and we can expand on this a little bit is that you really need to learn about your darkness. It's very easy to learn about. And I use that as a, in terms of a a bit of a layman's term, like we, it's very easy to know about all of our, or it's maybe easier to identify some of the things that we want to put forward on social media or the things that we, you know, that we want to present. I've heard, uh, I've heard you talk about this. I've heard other uh, psychologists, clinical psychologists talk about this idea that you are an incredibly dangerous person if you are not in connect if you are not connected with both let's say the light and the dark so both the things that are charismatic and magnetic and you want to show and also the things that make you know these core wounds that we you know we f- this for me it's like the you know the slot the lazy sloth uh fraud that someone is going to be like oh my gosh she doesn't work hard enough and she's not actually qualified like someone at any moment someone's going to be like I don't know. Why am I listening? To, why am I listening to the show? I don't know. She has nothing to offer, you know, something like that. Right. So I think that, um, identifying these sort of, I'll use core wounds or darkness, or, you know, you, you've been sort of talking about them in terms of flips, like the, you know, our desire for wanting attention or design desire for wanting like absolute obedience, let's say. So my, my question here, um, is how do we, maybe pick a more powerful pain, if you will, or how do we, maybe a better way of asking this question is how would, how do we override our tendency to focus on the situation? So how do we override our tendency to say, gosh, this marriage is really hard or gosh, this parenting thing. Like I, it's like, I just have rotten kids. That's why I'm not a great parent. Like how do we override the situation or whatever the pattern that has developed in our, uh, our brains are?
1: Well, you definitely don't have rotten kids. I promise. I know, I know it can feel sometimes so overwhelming. But um, first of all, I love what you said about the light and the dark. And I think a lot of times when we say dark, there's like all this kind of moralistic connotation. But when I hear you saying that, I, and I think we're in agreement on this, like it really just means unseen. It just means unknown. And how could I write, it kind of goes back to this idea of like these three engines. Like if it's a part of me, Wouldn't it be more powerful if I understood it and then could put it to use for me in some beneficial way? I promise you can. But in order to bring what is dark into the light, we must first look. So the resistance to look. Oh, my God. I, I think that the greatest public health issue on the planet, like between nations and marriages and families, is emotional avoidance. We will do anything. I I mean, anything to feel feelings we think we cannot feel. I want to answer your question. I actually want to take a little bit of a long way around and tell you why I named the book Energy Rising. Is that okay? Because I think it will. So um, I was telling you, I spent more time thinking about naming this book than I did my own children. um, Probably because I gestated this thing longer. But your brain and your body is the most brilliant machine on the planet. Your your brain and your body knows what to do with waste, okay? So we eat food and we pass it. We take in oxygen, we put out carbon dioxide. Every 27 days, the skin cells go. When there's a foreign invader in your immune system, your immune system knows how to get it and eject it. So the body knows what to do with waste. For some reason... We will not allow our bodies, we get, we interfere with our brain and our body and our nervous system's ability to eject emotional toxins. What do I mean by this? I start to have a feeling that I don't like. And what do I do? I start to, okay, I have to have a difficult conversation with somebody. Or I I know I need to do this thing for my business, but like, I just, I can't. Or I, I know that I need to engage with my kids differently. Or I know I need to engage with my spouse differently. And so this feeling starts to rise that doesn't feel good in the body. And what do I do? I avoid it. I deny it. I smush it down. I distract from it. I smush it down. I start scrolling. I smush it down. I smush it down. So this energy is is quite literally trying to rise through the body. Okay? But we are the ones that are, we have these like little pinball flaps. And we just keep like slapping it down, slapping it down, slapping it down. You do that for five years, 10 years, 50 years, 70 years. This is not an exaggeration. What is the only consequence of that? You will become emotionally constipated. You will become filled with emotional toxins. Well, then we know, I mean, you don't. again, you don't have to be a plumber to understand when there's a lot of junk in the pipes, the pipes don't work as well. So then, so then there's so much emotional junk in my pipes, somebody cuts me off at a stop sign and I am ready for World War III. You screwed up my order at Starbucks, it has ruined my day. My husband doesn't want to watch some you know, garbage show with me at, at, at night on the couch, he does not love me. Your, your nervous system is, is, is again designed, it's packing 150 million years of evolutionary power, it is designed to feel feelings. That, that's all it does. Nobody gets mad that the lungs are inflating and deflating and inflating and deflating. It's like, just feel the feelings. But we need to have a powerful enough, because there are parts of the brain that will will avoid it, will shut it down. And I'm happy to talk about that. But what I want people to hear at this point of our conversation is like, you're, it's actually not the situations in your life. It's the chronic unwillingness to feel feelings that your body is trying to pass that's actually creating a lot of pain in your life, and your life gets to feel so much better and so much more spacious and so more expansion when we start to move this energy.
0: It's like metabolism.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's like if you can metabolize the emotions. You can you can eliminate them eventually, right? But if you're constantly avoiding them, they're just going to stick around. You mean I, there's no real physiological way that you can shut down metabolism? But imagine imagine if your stomach and your liver were like, no, we're just not going to we're not going to process anything. You don't
1: like you're, that, yeah, exactly. Yeah,
0: yeah. So let, maybe a, maybe a, a bit of a neuro uh, physiological explanation, like what happens to the brain when we're triggered. Um, in, in, you can describe it with as much or a little detail as you, you talk about this a little bit in the book in terms of getting a, like arousal states, how, what our responses are like, maybe tell us what happens when we're triggered. So the Starbucks coffee comes, it's not a grande, it's I I don't even know, I don't order Starbucks. It's a grande, it's not a whatever, other size venti and you lose it. Um, what, what is happening to the brain is that is that a state of hyper arousal or if someone, uh, says, uh, or someone, you know, your child is mouthy to you or whatever it is. And you're just like, that's it. I'm the worst. I'm just, uh, I yeah. guess it, this is it, you know? Yeah.
1: So in the book, I talk about the difference between being, for example, trigger mad and being mad. So let's say that someone, I think a really simple example of this again is like somebody messes up my coffee order or somebody cuts me off at a stop sign. And I'm like mad for two blocks. I'm like, gosh, that was like kind of dangerous. And then I'm done. The emotion has, it has moved through. But if I am still talking about that at seven o'clock at night or next week, of course, you know, it's not just about the stop sign, right? So it, it, what's, what's really happening is it's touching these unconscious, largely emotional patterns, which is something like it's going to be these very, cause emotion, emotion is the native primitive and universal language of human beings. Okay. We all come out speaking a mother tongue of emotion. And if we're really honest about it, we all come out. We're not, we don't arrive on this planet like, wow, that was a really fun journey across this portal to Narnia. How lovely to be here. We're like red faced, terrified, enraged, screaming. So we have a very unique relationship with negative affect, which I think is isn't should not be missed. Okay. So when we When someone cuts us off at a stop sign, what it's actually triggering, and a lot of times this is, you know, you got to do the work to make the unconscious conscious, is people don't respect me. I never get my turn. People never listen to me. It becomes this very kind of, we call it catastrophic thinking in psychology. It's kind of very black or white binary kind of cognitive distortions. But the cognitive distortions are really kind of driven by this old emotional pattern, Okay. So there's a lot of ways that your nervous system can respond. Let's kind of go over. I think there's like five of them worth talking about. So fight or flight is like the ones that I think most people are the most familiar with. Okay, so you say something I don't like and I'm I'm snapping back, right? And it doesn't even mean that I have to be losing my mind. What, What we're really thinking about is again, what is the, what is the emotional GPS and the nervous system looking like right now? So even if I'm like, I sound kind of measured, if my heart is really pounding, and my hands are really sweating and my throat is really closing, even if I sound calm, that's putting a lot of stress on my body. Okay. So I could fight. I could run, right? I could just like leave the conversation. I got to go. I got to go. I got to go. Okay. That's kind of the, the flea. Freeze is when somebody says something to us and it activates us so much. It's like we just kind of freeze, right? We don't, we kind of lose our words or our our bodies quite literally freeze. And we think that this is called like the prey response, right? So if you're being chased by a lion and you're a gazelle and you know that you can't outrun the lion, it's quite wise for the, for the brain to really lock up the body. Mm hmm. So this is also a very common response for um, people who've endured a lot of trauma where they could not get away. So let's say there was sexual abuse or there was domestic violence. I, I truly cannot move my body out of the house or out of the assault. So I start to leave my body. I start to sort of cognitively sever from the body. Okay. Then there's fawn, which a lot of people have heard about these days. And again, this is this idea that Someone is so threatening to me. And a lot of us grew up in households with parents like this, where we felt like they were volatile and we had to walk on eggshells and their moods, man, their moods were law. So we kind of understood that we had to pathologically appease them in order to stay safe. Oh, look, mom, I cleaned the floor like this. Oh, look, dad. Oh, how about now, dad? Oh, how about now, mom? So we're like, kind of fawning over them, not because we really want to, again, we're thinking about the emotional impetus for this, but because if we don't, we're in danger. And then this translates Again, because it's really the emotional energy that's translating, not the situation. So now when I'm around people who I respect or believe they have authority over me directly or indirect, I'm more likely to like kiss their ass. And the reason I'm kissing their ass isn't because I want, nobody wants to kiss someone's ass. It's because I feel like if I don't, they're going to take the relationship from me. They're going to take my job from me. They're going to take that attention from me. And human beings aren't wired to be alone like that. The fifth one that I talk about is what I call fall apart. Okay. Fall apart is like when something quite minor happens and like you would think my house burned down. So for example, I was I was this it happened kind of recently. I was working with a client and she had to give this this huge talk. It was a, a there was a virtual talk, and there was like a thousand, it was a very big talk. There was like a thousand people on the call. And the, the, her internet glitched, but it glitched for, like, I mean, 15 seconds. It was very recoverable. The report that she got back on her talk, it was people were, like, raving about it. And she just kept talking about how the internet glitched. So it was, like, because there was, like, one minor problem, the whole thing is ruined. And I think a lot of us, like... High achieving women who whether we're you know high achieving at home or at work or a lot of us try to do both, we feel like like the, you know, the broccoli isn't right on the table and like we are losing our minds. And we're not, what I don't like is like we're losing our minds like we're savages. No, we're not savages. We're in a lot of pain. There's been a ton of pressure both put on us and we've been complicit in a lot of that, right? And so now we feel like if things kind of go wrong, they're catastrophes. So those are a lot of different nervous system states. Um, I want to say one other thing. When people do, t- so if you kind of noticed, a lot of those states, people get more, can be more active, right? If I'm going to run from you, but if I'm going to freeze, that's actually a deactivated state of the nervous system. So some people in the face of conflict will become more hyper aroused in some people, a lot of people, a lot of times when people have a lot of childhood trauma, a lot of emotional neglect, another common response, just to kind of break these into two general categories, one is hyper arousal and the other is hypo arousal. You'll see this in couples a lot. Okay. And it, it will look like this. Um, let's say it's a woman and a man. So the woman is saying, and I'm telling him that he's breaking my heart. I'm telling him he's going to, I'm, I'm going to leave the marriage. Like, they're, let's say they get in a fight last night. And this guy's about to fall asleep. You know, his, his eyes are closing. And what the guy will start to say, and, and it, doesn't, it doesn't break down on gender lines. I'm just using this for the example. Is What the guy will start to say when he's back online, emotionally online, is he's like, oh, no, 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 I wasn't about to fall asleep. He was like, I, I literally felt like I was shutting down. And so what will happen in those dynamics is the anxious person will start to escalate out more. Like, you're not hearing me. You're abandoning me. I'm telling you, I'm so upset. Like, I'm going to leave the mirror, please. And then the other person to compensate for all of that energy, because they don't know how their nervous system processes it differently, they'll start to look like they're shutting down more and more. And then you can see the disconnect that's so painful for both of them. But if we understood how nervous systems worked more clearly, I think we would have a lot more peace in our relationship.
0: I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount that is sunlighten S U N L I G H T E N.com slash B E T T E R and use code better at checkout. Where does, and it might fit in your framework and I could have missed it, um, where does the tend and befriend response fit in? Is that, does that fit into your framework or is that something that's separate? So one of the things that, um, I've, uh, read about and studied about the female stress response is that we tend to, and I, I would notice this myself. So whenever I had like my, I remember my board exams when I was studying for my boards, uh, it was like, you know what I need to do right now? Anatomy can wait. I need to organize the junk drawer in my kitchen. So I would just like go and organize things. I would make, I had to have like my, I was like tending to my environment. Another piece of the tend and befriend response is that, you know, you call your mom or you call a friend or, you know, you sort of, you're trying to uh h- harness some kind of connection uh with someone who will either, you know, hear your gripes or listen to what's going on so that you can sort of uh m- m- help maybe co-regulate, like maybe you're using that as Absolutely. a co-regulation Absolutely. technique. Yeah, Yeah.
1: So first of all, I think like listening to you talk about the, the tendon befriend is I think it totally depends. In some cases, it would probably be remarkably adaptive. So you're absolutely right. Like human beings have this remarkable ability to co-regulate. I mean, this is what attachment is, right? Attachment isn't just abstract. It's that when I and I'm in the presence of a, lov- a loving, supportive person, it changes my physiology, so if I'm too kind of up in the up in the body like I'm too anxious, I can't really focus and I can call my mother and I start to kind of ground and I'm not over I'm not I don't need to call her 10 times a day in order to function. This could be beautiful. But if I'm if I'm like okay, I need to just organize my junk drawer and now it's like 15 hours later and I'm like going through old socks and now I'm in the garage this to me sounds like a procrastination response. And all procrastination really is, is it's avoidance, right? It's there's something so distressing about the task, normally that I'm not going to nail it and I'm not nailing it. What is that really about? I'm going to humiliate myself.
0: And it's like, it's almost like a self sabotage. It's like, okay. you know what, I'm I, I didn't pass the my anatomy, inad- let's say I didn't pass my boards, or I didn't pass the whatever, because I didn't study. Well, I w- the reason why I wasn't studying is because I was Got into the junk drawer, and then all of a sudden, I'm looking at pictures from 1999 and That's- reorganizing the garage. As you said, you're like doing the scrapbooks that you have yeah.
1: not put together for 20 years, but exactly. now it's the day.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Uh, okay, so now we've sort of uh, let, let's let's talk a little bit about let's come back to this. Like, how can we override these tendencies now? So we have these messages, we have these patterns, we get hypo aroused, hyper aroused. We have these stress responses. How can we start to build out uh, our power pattern? Like I've I've seen people you sort of use memes online, like choose your hard marriage is hard, but so is divorce, you know, like, ch- how can we, you know, picking the pain that we sort of want to lean into? What are what are some ways that we can begin to override, you know, when we feel this, maybe it's that avoidance, as I was just talking about with my board exams, or it's a, a difficult conversation that you may be avoiding with your partner, your mother, whomever, how can we start to archetype um, or architect, maybe uh, architect the archetype uh, in terms of the the person that we want to show up uh, as, and uh, I would maybe call this like a bit more leaning into the realm of like self actualization How can we show up as the best version of ourself
1: beautiful question, and so wh- again, one of the things I really want to do for people is just simplify so you know I think if you find the idea of like Hyper arousal and hypo arousal and fawn versus fall apart. That's that's amazing. I also think it can be as simple, because this is actually the foundation of it is anytime I feel any bad feeling, this is going to work. If you think about the brain, it's only three pounds. It's actually less than three pounds in most of us. Okay. I always say it's the most precious real estate on the planet. So you know we have a billion synonyms, a billion for feeling bad. I'm upset. I'm annoyed. I'm fearful. I'm anxious. I'm stressed. I'm pissed off. I'm aggravated. I'm agitated. I feel inadequate. I feel disappointed. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on. But it's not like there's a circuit for every feeling like that in the brain, right? The brain has to be very efficient. So anytime you feel these kind of fearful, angry, inadequate feelings, you're tapping into the same neural circuits in the brain. Now, these things exist on a continuum. In other words, I feel a little bit stressed. Do I feel traumatic stress? It's the same parts of the brain, but it's a difference in, in degree and not type. So what I want people to understand is whether you get hyper aroused or whether you get hypo aroused or whether you're more likely to fawn versus whether you're more likely to fight, what we're really targeting is something very simple, very clear that you can always fall back on it, which is, Let me think about that feeling in my body that I keep trying to avoid. That's, that's your target. Okay. Now I'm going to tell, if it's okay with you, I'm going to tell a story. That's a pretty extreme story that I think is going to, and then I'll kind of bring this back to like what I think is more common examples of stress. Does that work? Yes. So as I mentioned, I do a lot of work with um, extreme trauma. So I've done a lot of work with Domestic violence. I did a lot of work with torture. I've done a lot of work. I did a lot of international humanitarian aid and relief work before I um, became a neuropsychologist. I've done a lot of work with combat and war. So I'm going to tell you a story about a combat veteran that I worked with. And the reason I'm choosing to tell this story is precisely because it's so extreme. Meaning, if it works at the most extreme cases of human pain and human behavior, of course, there are things for all of us to learn. And then we'll talk about how to apply this. So I was working with a combat veteran who came in to see me, and he had been back from deployment for many, many years. PTSD is an extraordinarily crushing and debilitating disorder. So he comes in, he's been back from deployment for many, many years. He comes into my office, and I say, what's going on? And he goes, well, I don't, uh, I don't drive. This is trauma happened in the context of a convoy, so I don't. Now I'm back in suburban USA. I don't drive. I don't really go to public places. I don't go to malls. I don't go to restaurants. I don't go to movies. Most devastatingly is his kids were now grown, but when they were little, he could not tolerate being around them because little kids are very volatile and they scream and they make noises and this would make him very reactive. Anger and irritability are a common symptom of PTSD. So he was kind of having these explosions at home. Ultimately, and this was the most devastating for him, his his wife left him. He was getting in a lot of altercations at work. So basically, he's saying this horrible thing happened to me. Okay, The event is over. Not only is it over, it happened many, many, many years ago. But the energy, the emotional energy is still very much alive in the body. Again, this is not metaphorical. This is actually what is happening in the neurology, okay? So he's saying, because that's like inside of me now, I'm the one who carries it. I'm trying to avoid all of these externalities, malls and relationships and people and conversations. So I don't have to, it doesn't bang up against my junk. It doesn't bang up against this stuff that's already inside of me. So I say, and I want your listeners to hear this too, is like mental health is a very difficult field. there's a lot a lot of complexity, but there are things we are very, very good at treating. Anxiety is one of them. We are very, we have very good scientific measures for treating anxiety very effectively. So I, and PTSD is an anxiety disorder. So he I say to him, well I have some great news we actually have a lot of evidence and the frontline most evidence-based treatments tell us what to do in situations like these. So you have been avoiding the trauma and avoiding thinking about the trauma and avoiding talking about the trauma. So what we're going to do is the exact opposite. Instead of continuing to avoid talking about it, we're going to talk about it and we're going to talk about it in detail. We're not going to use generalities. We're actually really going to get into the parts that are stuck inside of you that are causing you so much pain. He's like, I don't really think that this sounds like the greatest idea. On the, I just told you I've like basically organized my whole life to not do this thing. I was like, I know. And this is why psychoeducation and having a really trusting relationship with your psychologist or therapist is really important. So I say this, you know, we kind of go over the evidence. And basically, I also tell him that in addition to talking about the trauma in session, we record basically use your phone, you record yourself talking about the trauma, you go home and you listen to it over and over and over again. So he says, well, I'm kind of out of options. And basically, I'm, I, I trust you. And also like this man has a ton of courage and says, all right, I'm going to do it. So he, he really gives himself over to the treatment. Now, remember, he's been back for many, 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 many years. And his life is shrinking, 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 shrinking. He's feeling worse with time. Meaning he has a lot of evidence that the things he thinks are going to help him are actually making him worse. Isn't that interesting? So he says, all right, fine. I'm going to give it a shot. He comes into my office. Okay. I'm not kidding. Like week 12. 12 weeks. Holds the phone up in front of my face and says, doc, I don't think I can do this anymore. So I say, okay, sit down and tell me what's going on. He says, every time I listen to this recording, I fall asleep. It is as dull as shit. Every time I tell that story, I like, I get chills. So this, this memory, right? It wasn't even the trauma. It was the memory of the trauma that was stored in his nervous system that had been tormenting him for years is now so transformed. Because he's willing to have a new relationship with the very emotions he's been avoiding. He finds the story boring. What that means for for people who don't have that level of trauma. First of all, it matters if you do have that level of trauma. It's we keep avoiding. I don't really want to speak up. I don't really want to have this conversation with these people in my life. I don't really. I think a lot of us get into a lot of pain in our romantic relationships because we almost feel it's like for some of us it's like a humiliation to admit that we want somebody's attention. So instead, we'll make passive aggressive comments. Oh, so uh, you're gonna keep your face in that phone all night? Who taught you how to load the dishwasher like that? Okay, fine. I guess I'll do right instead of saying, "Hey." I I wish I didn't have to say this because I think I kind of said it before, but I, I do want to make sure that I'm communicating clearly, like, I really miss you. I would love to like, just chill out, like, let's have tea or wine tonight and talk. So until I'm, if that, for example, makes me feel too vulnerable or too humiliated or too embarrassed, or I think it's his job to do it, well, the only reason I think it's his job is because it makes me feel bad that it's my job. So do you see what I'm saying? So until we're willing to come into a new relationship with these feelings that keep popping up, one of the things I always say is that no one in the history of psychology has come to see a psychologist because they keep repeatedly getting hit in the face with a two by four. first time that happens, you get hit in the face with it. You're like, that's just horrible. Let's stop. Let's never do that again. All of the problems in our life, by, by nature of what they are, are chronic. We're having the same conversations. We're having the same frustrations. We're irritated by the same things we get in these patterns. Well, the patterns are ultimately sustained by emotion. So let me, let me just come up for air. Is, is this all kind of, am I, is the way I'm explaining this helpful?
0: Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. And I, I think the, um, what I'm hearing you say, I think for most people, we all can fall into this trap and this is why conversations like this are so important. It's so much easier to make the passive aggressive comment. Oh, I guess I'll be loading the dishwasher today, you know, and then blame the failure of the relationship on, the other person. Like it's very easy to other versus being open and vulnerable and saying, Hey, you know what? Like, this is really important to me that we spend some time together with you, not on your phone, or, you know, it's really important to me to have a clean home. Can you just put your dish in the, here's where you put it up, you know, being vulnerable and saying, Hey, this is really important to me. And this is why. And I would argue that there's so many individuals and I, I would, I would categorize myself here that it's, it's so much more threatening to the ego to fail while doing something that, well, when you're all in versus making an excuse for why it didn't happen, which is why we see people stuck in careers that they don't love, you know, they'll justify it by saying it's safe and the benefits and the when they really have an inkling to start this, I don't know, this other company or to jump to another, you know, to 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 change. And it's much easier to say, well, I could have done that if I wanted, but you know, I didn't, it's so much more threatening to say, yeah, I went all in. I opened the business. I, you know, whatever it is, whatever the dream, the big hairy audacious, you know, goal is um, it's, it's harder to say, yeah, I tried it. And I, I did what I wanted to do and I failed, which is more egoic, right? It's more driven by our ego and what we are. We're so much more concerned about what other people think about us. And in, I, I I'm, Pre framing this because in the book you talk about harnessing these energetics, and there's some questions with your permission. I'll ask just I'll, I'll read just two or three of them. Um, that you that you write in the book that I sat on and I was thinking about. If, if it's okay if I can read just course, one or two you, of the by questions. the way, you're
1: like, what how you just described that there that was very beautiful, very moving. You're exactly yeah. right. It's like it's interesting too. It's like, how did we even get to this point where? saying to our partners, which the whole reason we're with them is because we want them. Like how did it then get converted and perverted into like being humiliating to say, Hey, I, I want you, I want to be with you. I want your attention. Right. So it's like, we, we participate in our own destruction. I think paradoxically enough, that's such an empowering and relieving message. Because if I was really the victim of all my circumstances then all I could do is just hope. I used to have a colleague that would say, it's a little bit crass, but I think it's appropriate right now. He would say shit in one hand and wish in the other and watch which one fills up first. So (laughs) thank God that I can, by nature of what a relationship is, it's always this energetic exchange, this emotional exchange between me and the other person. So I am 50% of that equation.
0: Yes. So questions like asking yourself questions. So you, in the book, you talk about releasing active triggers. So you talk about choosing you and releasing these triggers. And there's a whole process that you outline in the book, which you'll have to pick up the book to sort of go through. But there's some questions in here that really made me stop um, and think, would you rather people like you or you like you? Um, Are you powerful enough to be misunderstood? Mm. Good grief. That gives me chills, really. And then the last one I wanted to just highlight is, would you rather other people be interested in your work or you be interested in your work? Mm. Yes. So good. And I think that for so many of us, we are so concerned about I mean, this is kind of at the top of our conversation. We are talking about external validation and you were talking about the cups and how we always are looking externally for that external validation for someone to plug those leaky buckets or those leaky holes um, in our cups. But I think what you're saying really, and this comes back to that original uh, sort of um, tangent that we were talking on, is that we are the ones that are going to save ourselves. We are the ones that are going to plug the holes in our cup or our leaky bucket and we have to like ourselves enough, you know, to to choose ourselves and to learn about ourselves—the light, the dark. You know, the sh- Danielle Laporte calls it like our shadow side. I mean, she's not the only one, but uh, Danielle's a friend, so she'll talk about like our shadow side or our shadow self. Learning about some of these things so that we can become whole, and so then that we, can, we can
1: become whole. Yes, yeah, yes. You know, I think that our our greatest addiction. Is other people's approval. Yes. So. So this,
0: good. Yeah.
1: Now, I, I, it's such a, again, kind of going back to this idea of like, no one comes for help because they're getting hit in the face with a two by four. Almost all of the emotional issues in our life are complex. In other words, other people's, you know, one of the things I'll sometimes see people do when they're talk, because I think there's been a lot of beautiful conversations about boundaries. So sometimes I'll see people like put these like funny memes, like. I'm holding boundaries. I don't care what you think. And it will be like, you know, some like funny meme. I don't actually think that's the most emotionally powerful way to respond. Like we actually do care what other people think. We should care what other people think. We are quite literally wired to the people who are close to us. Like So I think what we're saying is I really care about you. I certainly don't mean to hurt you. I also really need to love and honor myself. So it is kind of this like, somewhat sophisticated relationship between self and other but going back to this idea that like other people's approval is our biggest addiction just think about the conundrum that this this so i think that we are on this planet to create to create a life to create a family to create relationships to create businesses to create books to create podcasts to create you know i mean you're such you're such a powerful creator well you know, Stephanie, if you had said, okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I mean, creation is, is like the mother act of leadership. It's me taking my energy and bringing something into the world that hasn't yet been brought forth. Well, if I feel inspired to do this, if I kind of have this calling, and I think it's in all of us in varying ways, and then I'm waiting for other people to give me permission to create something that's not even in their brain, they don't even get it. You see how it's like it can't it it'll just can't you can't get the math on that to work. And then the feelings that I then start to feel again, it's very logical, it's very predictable. I start to feel resentment. I start to feel annoyed. I start to feel overly yoked. I feel like like suffocated like this life is so it doesn't fit me, right? So I have to say, If I'm really going to create something that hasn't not yet been brought into this world, whether it's like a way to design my kitchen table, do my bathroom, write a book, create a new thing online, I have to be willing to say, am I powerful enough to be misunderstood? I'll tell you a quick story about the book. I actually wrote Energy Rising twice, and its first iteration, it was not called Energy Rising. So, I'm an academic, and um, you know, I as when I wrote the first book, I this is my first, you know, I published a lot in the scientific literature, but this was my first popular book. And so, when I wrote it the first time, I wrote it very defended. I wrote it protected. I don't know who I was arguing against, but I was definitely arguing against, like, I was anticipating to your point earlier, all the people that would tell me, you know, like criticize me or tell me what an idiot I was. Or what, so, it was this really kind of
0: you wrote it for your peers.
1: It's yeah. like
0: you wrote it for your but, but peers. Here's, and
1: the here. thing. here's the thing too. I made them all up in my head. <laughs> yes. They were all the, hallucinating. The jury,
0: the jury, the yeah. peer jury in yeah. your mind. Yes.
1: <laughs> in, in, in air quotes, the, the colleagues in my head. Like these people yeah. aren't even real. Like my colleagues are actually quite lovely, okay? So uh, I I had this moment and I don't even know why I had it where I was like, do not miss the miracle." This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, okay? I have been asked, like I mentioned, to do other things, and I had said no. I've been put on this planet to talk about human pain and human power. Do it right. And also, how in the world could you possibly talk to people about emotional power and not show up in your own? So I threw 75,000 words. I'm not talking early drafts. I'm talking the thing in the trash, and I started over. I wrote my editor and I was like, hey, because I was like, he's going to he's going to drop me. And I was like, hey, just so you know, there's a, a totally new draft. I know you put a lot of work in the other one. If you all I'm asking is that you read this one because I wanted to be very respectful of him and his. Right. If if it doesn't work, we can. And um, he was like, this one is much better. But I'm also it's also raw. I, there's eight, you know, I, I like the book's going to launch soon and I am like. All in my feelings, right? I, every single feeling, I'm excited. I'm nervous. I'm terrified. I'm even sad. You know, I, why, you know, so it's like, I just am feeling feelings right now because this thing that feels so core to me is now going to be like out in the world. And I think those are the types of feelings that we need to continue to work with and sit with. And like, I know there's going to be days, like, I don't think everybody's going to like the book. So what am I going to do about my feelings? Am I going to get like, well, you didn't, you didn't understand it or like, no, it's okay. It's okay. You see that? It's just okay. Like somebody doesn't agree with me. Why do we make it? A, why do we make it? Like we're suddenly on trial about our very worthiness. Oh man. It's just so if we could bring all this, like slow ourselves down enough to look at it and really see the dynamics that are happening, it becomes much more spacious and then much more satisfying.
0: I really, for everyone that's listening, I really want you to take that to heart because I think that in, in a society that that has in recent years, at least my observation of it, um, has really moved towards uh, you can never make a mistake. Uh, everybody has to like you. Everybody, you know, we all have to, we all have to get along and all, you know, I I love what you're saying. And like, not everyone's gonna like the book. When my when my book came out, I had the same fears. And it was I sort of likened it to birthing a child. It was like, and here's my child, everyone. Isn't it cute? Don't you love it? Tell me how good my book baby is, you know? And lots of people, great feedback, and then, you know, you go on a couple sites and and, people do not hold back and it's like all right i that's good and some of it was actually really great feedback which i will take into the next right. into right. the next uh, 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 book that i write which was actually really really helpful and well, some do people just you see just that though right up.
1: there like you had to be powerful enough to say okay uh, cuz like of course the, the nervous system's going to flare up you're going to be like uh, uh, but so if you would have stopped there You're basically saying they were saying some really insightful things that if I would allow the message in, I could actually make the next iteration of this even more extraordinary. But you have to be powerful because I think plenty of people would have parried and said, I'm not listening to that. They missed the point. So if we want powerful relationships, we need to come into a new relationship with emotional pain.
0: Yes. And you talk about this idea of not like mastering uncertainty, which I love as well. I mean, we've touched on it a little bit in our conversation with like, if the world makes you feel safe, you can still not feel safe. Because if you don't feel safe in your body, like no one's ever going to be able to give that to you. Um,
1: I would love to talk about this because I think it will really resonate with people.
0: Yeah, let's go there. So Yes, you mentioned, of course, safety is vital to our brain. It's, you know, Maslow's higher, like we need to feel like we have shelter and food and we need to sort of have some of these basic needs met. But when does too much psychological safety, when does that become uh, maladaptive or, or dangerous?
1: Such a good question. And that this is, again, sort of like the heartbeat of what it means to work with anxiety. So first of all, let's go back to like how to think about the brain. So your brain is best understood as a pattern detection machine, okay? So your brain is moving you through your life going apple, 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 fill in the blank, apple, okay? So if if you think about, you know, as a trauma person, I work with a lot of very extreme human emotions, rage, despondency, betrayal, grief. Actually, and those those emotions are incredibly intense for the nervous system to handle. But if you actually think about the machinery of the brain, one of the most difficult emotions for the brain to handle is one we don't talk about, confusion, okay? And I don't care if you call confusion ambiguity, uncertainty, you know, like confusion is I just don't know what comes next in the pattern detection machine, Well, a machine has got to do what a machine is designed to do. So if I'm in the business of going apple, 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 I get to a blank and I'm like, oh my God, is it watermelon? Is it banana? Is it nectarine? You can see how the machine is like, I don't know what comes next. Okay. Well, so here's what happens. So we live our lives. Actually, let me tell you a really interesting study that I think will, I think it's a really powerful study. So when we bring people into the lab and researchers have done this and they say, okay, we're going to hook you up to this machine that electrocutes you. We had one of these machines in our lab, and they make no mistake about it, it is very painful to be electrocuted. We hook people up to these machines, and these researchers would say, okay, the machine's gonna count down, five, four, three, two, one, and you definitely are gonna get shocked. Or in this experiment, they had people in, in another condition where they would the machines would count down, five, four, three, two, one, and you would or would not get a shock. In other words, it was uncertain people statistically in this research study prefer to be in the condition where they were definitely going to get a shock now you we've all heard about these people who use these ideas of like rational models of behavior and how humans are so irrational because we don't the brain is not irrational okay the brain is an extraordinary it's the most brilliant machine on the planet what this is telling you if we're if we're kind of willing to look at the truth of our our biology is it's saying there are actual situations in your life where the emotional pain of uncertainty is greater than literal physical pain now think about this also these I, I don't know where the study was conducted but these people are coming into a, an academic a university setting you're going to like the University of Michigan or the University of California, like no one, everybody knows they're not getting murdered that day. Do you know what I mean? Like people are like, oh, this thing is gonna really drop me dead in the lab. So they know, like there's a lot of context that this is actually a pretty safe environment. And yet still they say "This, this kind of uncertainty is I'm not willing to sit with it. I think we also saw a lot of this in COVID. A lot of us either said or heard people say, I wish I would just get COVID and get it over with already. Okay, we don't like that feeling of, Is the other shoe going to drop? Is the other shoe going to drop? Is the other shoe going to drop? So what do we do in the real world? I think a lot of your listeners are going to resonate with this. And when we feel uncertain, the brain is going to say, okay, I need to close the pattern. How am I going to close the pattern? I'm going to start creating certainty by controlling the external environment. How do I do that? I do that by something I call the overs. I start to overwork. I start to over communicate. I start to over explain, over give, over work, over do, over accommodate. I mean, should I go on? Over engineer, over rotate, over function. A lot of us are over functioners. Now there is a galactic difference between working and overworking, between giving and overgiving. It is gorgeous to give. It lights us up. But overgiving only comes from an emotional impetus of fear. If I do not give this. I will somehow be harmed. Working is glorious. I hope we all like our jobs. Like they bring us great joy a lot of times. But when I really start to overwork, I'm only overworking because I'm afraid. I'm afraid of my relevancy being, you know, losing my my influence or my relevancy or people are going to get mad at me. So what this is such a big such a big paradox and there's so much neuroscientific, neuropsychological evidence to support this. When we start to obsessively seek certainty by overdoing it. I'm going to be safe as long as I you know, over-engineer things in my life. We actually make ourselves more uncertain. Pathologically seeking certainty actually makes you more anxious. And we think, no, 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 no. The thing I actually need to do is like, I just haven't worked enough yet. No, 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 no. I just haven't got enough things done on the list. I haven't called enough people that this is you want the best definition for anxiety anxiety is a disturbed relationship with certainty that if i can control the external world enough then for sure i can be safe this is kind of the core of every anxiety disorder ptsd ocd social anxiety again Maybe some of us don't have these conditions clinically, but like it exists on a continuum. So what I'm saying here is actually the opposite of uncertainty is not certainty. Well, that's sort of strange because linguistically, it sounds like the opposite of uncertainty should be certainty. No. What's the opposite of uncertainty? The opposite of uncertainty is self-trust. That no matter what happens out there, I'm already okay in here. Now, make no mistake about it. Being okay in here does not mean my nervous system won't feel feelings that my nervous system is designed to feel. But if I'm unwilling to say, okay, it's going to make me a little bit anxious to say to say no to this person. It's going to make me a little bit scared to hold this boundary. It's going to make me a little bit scared to tell my boss, hey, you know what? If you really want me to do extraordinary work, I'm going to have to say no to this project. If we're what happens with our lives is we're pulled out, we're pulled so external. These people's behavior, these people's comments, these people's and we pay no attention to the inner world. I'm not saying throw caution to the wind and pay absolutely no attention to the external world. That's that's ludicrous. What I am saying is why though do we pay no meaningful attention to the inner environment? So if we mean it, if we mean we want the most powerful actor in our life must be us we're not the only actor but we must be the most powerful actor in our own life we're the main character we're leading the show so if i continue to participate in my own destruction what good does it even get if i make it to the promised land but i feel like raggedy shit I see it all the time. I work with really, really high-performing leaders. I see it all the time. They make it. They make it on every external measure. They got the resume, they got the title. We've all heard it a million times. And the reason, I don't know why we don't believe it. If I make it there, but I've, I've severed myself from my engine of feeling, it cannot deliver you. Why? Because your brain is making meaning mostly through emotional circuits. Have you been successful enough? I don't know. How do you feel about it? Do you have a good life? I don't know. How do you feel about it? Do you have enough followers? Do you have enough money? Do you have enough time? How much time is enough time? How much money? Should you stay in the marriage? Should you... How... All of these are ultimately mediated by feeling. So you cannot make it to a destination feeling like shit and think by the time you get there, you're going to feel good.
0: So good. It's so good. It's like I feel like I'm I'm at church right now. <laughs> like this, you're dropping this sermon. I love it. It's so awesome. And I, I think, um, um, you know, to to quote the uh, I'm a sort of a closet Swiftie. You know, to, to quote Taylor Swift. You know, it's me. Hi, I'm yes. the problem. It's yes, me. I love that.
1: you too. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I always say, and thank God. Honest to God, thank God. Because if it really wasn't me, that was the problem. What could I do? If I had to distill all of my work down, it comes down to a single question, and it's this. How can I get these people around me who mean a lot to me? My partner, my spouse, my parents, my, my social media followers, my co-workers. How can I get these people around me who matter a lot to me to behave differently so that I don't have to feel feelings inside my own body? That's always the punchline. If I, if there were, again, all of my pain, all of my problems are my pain. So I, I, you know, I, I work all the time with like the, in the parent and child dynamic. And I will have like this kind of a, a funny story in a way, but like I will have parents that will come to me and be like, she just doesn't, she doesn't respect me. She doesn't love me. And the kids like, like, I don't know why she keeps saying this. I love her to death. I just don't like geometry. <laughs> so it's like because the kid isn't doing the math homework the way the parent thinks the math homework needs to be done, it's now become this like meta thing about like how, how the child doesn't love the pig. And and you can see it's really the parent's fear. The parent is starting to say, if she doesn't do good in geometry, then she's not going to do good in high school. And then she's not going to get into college. And then she's going to drop out of college. And then she's never going to get a job. And then by the end of the story, she's living under a bridge in a refrigerator box. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's just slow that emotional roll, like, by, I don't know, 170 miles per hour. And, like, she, she just doesn't like geometry. Are there things you don't like? Yeah, well, don't you like? I didn't really like history. Did that ruin your life? No. You don't, you see what I'm saying? So we because we go so we think it's the situation. We totally avoid the emotion. If we could look at the emotion, we could see how that's giving rise to the situation, and things become so much more pliable.
0: The other thing I like about um, your framework is you also talk about sort of playing it out. You talk about this in the eighth code, develop your relationship from the future. It's not just how the relationships are right now. So maybe the mother daughter, you know, the, the daughter that doesn't like the geometry or, you know, with the story of your veteran, you know, like he probably very likely had a very strained relationship, uh, with his children, but your relationships are not just, where they are right now, especially for the ones that really matter, there's going to be a long delta, there's going to be a time frame, there's going to be a story arc, if you will, of your relationship with these people. So think about how you want, you know, in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, how you want this relationship to look like, and then almost reverse engineer what needs to happen, almost very similar to, you know, if you want to be able to lift a certain amount of weight when you're 75? Well, what do you need to be able to do right now in order to make sure that you can do that when you're 75 years of age? It's the same, I think, uh, in, in many ways, it's a parallel vertical. Like if you want to be able to have a nourishing relationship with your children when they're older uh, and you want them to visit you and you want to have some kind of relationship, what do, what has to change right now? And it's usually, you know, to your point, it's like, what can I, like, thank God it's me. Thank God I'm the problem because then I have some control at least or some say in the prognosis or some say in the outcome.
1: Absolutely. I mean, so that code resonates a lot with me. So I have two children and one is more like me and one is a little bit like just kind of behaves more like me and one doesn't. I've I've never really told the story. So I'm like, do I want to tell the story? So he is, he's more difficult for me. So I was, um, I don't, I was not, I wouldn't say I was a compliant child, but I just like, if my mother said like, okay, it's time to get in the car, I would just get in the car. Okay. And this child bless his heart. It's like, at every at every turn. He's so, your
0: spiritual teacher. He's, he's your spiritual teacher. Oh my god. Teacher.
1: Oh my god. Now I grew up in a household that was very command and control. So if I were to have said to my mother I'm not getting in the car, that would not have gone well on a lot of levels, okay? So my, we all fall back on the old frameworks. We all fall back on the old examples. We all fall back on the old coding. So my instinct with him is first of all, it's confusion. because the pattern detector right, I'm confused and then I'm like no, no, no! You need to get in the get in the car. Get, get what are you talking about? You got to get in the car. So I have basically done exactly this. Like I have created photos of him, actual photos of him in the future. I want a relationship with this man. I adore him, and there is no way in hell I'm gonna I'm gonna ruin this relationship. He's he's little. He just turned eight. I'm not ruining this relationship with this 28 year old because. He won't get in the damn car or, like, for the love of God, he will not pick up his, like, clothes in the bathroom. No, that doesn't also doesn't mean I'm going to teach him to not respect other people's boundaries and not. Right. But I the way that, like, it would just it kind of comes naturally to me or comes naturally to my daughter. It doesn't come to him. So if I stay in the now, I will lose my marbles almost every time. So I almost have to remove myself from time, ta- like from this moment in time, and think, who, who, what is this relationship going to become to me? And is the likelihood that that if he's at not picking up his clothes at eight, like is it possible that at twelve he's developed that skill? Is he also communicating something to me that I'm not like? What if, I'm asking him to get in the car, okay? Why though? I maybe I'm making this up. Maybe I want to go to Target. He got up today at, you know, let's say like 6.30 a.m. He went to school. He's coming home. It's like he's tired. Maybe he doesn't have the language to say, like, going to Target, Mom, feels very neurologically overwhelming to me. Like, can I just please play with my... So it's only when I'm able to say, like, get out of that moment that I'm able to kind of emotionally regulate and say, there's a more powerful version of this. So don't let this smaller version of me right now... Ruin something that has the potential to be so extraordinary in the future. And the other thing about parents, too, is like a lot of times we'll be like, OK, so our kid is going to be an astronaut when they grow up and they're going to be in the NBA or they're going to whatever they're going to go to the same college I did. um it doesn't even have to be like something like so extraordinary. But when you ask parents, OK, what does tell me about the the emotional texture of the relationship with your 18 year old? What does it feel like? There's usually not an answer to that which is really interesting because like we know what our retirement accounts look like in the future. We kind of have some some idea of like the businesses we would like to build. But the most important things in our life, it's like we haven't invested the attentional resources to develop a vision in the future.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing that story. I know that there are so I mean your honesty and transparency is not lost. Uh here, I think that I certainly can relate to that. I definitely have spiritual teachers that live in my home as well. <laughs> and you know, you, sometimes you have to catch yourself and you're like, is it about getting in the car right now? And what is it? Who am I becoming? Oh yeah. There the, uh, Oh, who, who told me who acted like this? Where did I pick this up from? Um, so I really appreciate that. And I think that there's going to be a lot of people who hear this that are, are going to find that incredibly valuable as well, because, you know, for me a success in terms of being a parent is when the children don't have to see me anymore and they are no longer dependent on me for their survival. Do they still want to have a relationship with I know. me? At at the very least, right? Are they are they communicating with me when they don't have to? Um are they coming over for Sunday dinner or for Thanksgiving or whatever it is, right? Um that that's really important to me and it's important I have two sons um who will eventually be men and I want to have relationships with these beautiful men. Like I want to I want to be witness to their transformation and sometimes it's a little bit of letting go of like oh my gosh they're not doing the geometry in the way that I want. Let me just get them all the geometry tutoring and you know whatever and just let them uh sort of let them find their I mean with guidance but let them find their own way. And as you were as you were telling that story there I forget her name now but there was a um, uh, there was a student many years ago, uh, she couldn't stay still in class, she was constantly getting in um, trouble with her teachers. And before they had the label, I think before in the DSM, the label of, you know, ADHD or or what have you was um, accepted, even though we know it often runs in more commonly in boys, this girl was just like kind of fidgety, she had to move all the time. And so she was taken to whatever psychologist and the psychologist had some time alone with uh, this girl. And then he went to the parents and said, you know, she doesn't have a, she doesn't have a problem. She's just a dancer. You know, does she like to dance? Like, does she like music? And then, so they ended up putting her in a special school. I think you're nodding your head. You may know the end of the story. So she, you know, went to the special school, specialized school for dance. She ended up becoming a music composer and she composed, uh, she created, um, uh, I think it's Phantom what's the
1: phantom of the opera or no yes phantom
0: was it phantom of the opera or no cats it was cats okay Okay. so she ends up creating this phenomenal play which millions have touched millions of people right so if she was sort of uh Squished into, let's say, a vertical of no. You have to sit still at school, and they didn't ever give her any sort of. They didn't move her into this uh, community or the schooling that was more conducive to the way that her brain worked. We would never have that beautiful piece of work, that beautiful art. So I just, um, and I, I'll fact check myself on it. I think, I think it's, I think it's cats. I, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll look I it up. Did not know the in, story,
1: but it's, it's an incredible story. I mean, I think it's just like allowing people to be who they are. But then this is the other piece. And I think this is, you know, there's so much talk out there about self-care, which is amazing. But I think there's so much pragmatism even to our parenting when we really think powerfully about self-care. So what I see happen in, in some of the parents that I work with and certainly in my own life is like emotions are a currency, okay? We understand currencies, time obviously with money, So for example, if you come to me, Stephanie, and you're like, hey, Julia, can you please give me $10? Even if I want to give you $10, but I do not have $10, I just cannot give it to you. And it's very clear. So a lot of times our children are asking for for these emotional currencies for us. They're asking for attunement. They're asking for patience. They're asking for acceptance. How in the world could I meaningfully Give to my child what I do not already possess with inside of myself. How in the world can I attune to you, sweet child, when I am just frenzied? I am just battered by the pace of my life. How can I really trust you when I don't trust myself? How can I, you know, part going back to the thing with the car, I'm sure I was running a tight ship that day. And the whole reason I'm running a tight ship is because like, I got to get to somewhere I don't even really know where I'm going. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm trying to get all the things on the to-do list. Why? Because if I don't, I don't know, the world's going to stop spinning on its axis. So our kids are, you know, I said emotions are the native and universal language. That is the absolutely like the mother tongue. Like in other in other relationships maybe like it's like speaking English but with different accents. Like our kids are reading our emotional energy like nobody else. I'll tell you this. I'll, this actually happened the other day too. I was helping my little girl. Um, I'm teaching my kids how to do their own laundry, right? Just because I want them to be responsible and I don't want to do their laundry anymore, right? So, um, and I was, I actually was being kind of matter of fact. I was like, "Okay, we're going to put the things here and then we're going to put the things here and then we're going to put the things here. And my little girl said, um... Why why are you talking so meanly? And I said, Oh, I didn't know that I was talking meanly. I thought that I was just mm-hmm. kind of like I was actually trying to just move it along. And she was like, No, it sounds like you're it sounds like you're yelling at me. And then I was like, Oh, I'm really sorry. Okay, let me like try again. I really appreciate that feedback. So then I think it was probably just yeah, I'm sure we were like getting my little girls sick, so probably getting distracted by a million things. So then I probably start again like, no, no, come on, we gotta do, 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 do. And then she said, mama, you keep talking to me like that. And you say that you're not yelling at me, but your voice tells me otherwise.
0: Oh, they're so smart. I Our kids like, are so smart. Aren't I they? know.
1: <laughs> and I almost like, you know, I like, I didn't start crying, but I, I felt like, okay, we are yeah. whatever it takes now. We will like now have a stuffed animal tea party. Like, because it was much more important to me that she felt like I was really there to help her and to tune her, which is what I was trying to do. But I got distracted by the, by the task at hand. So I kind of like lost the, the forest and I got too focused on the trees.
0: Gosh. Well, I think that this is a beautiful, I think this is a beautiful place to say that this book is required, I think it's required reading for, I mean, it, 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 it transcends so many different verticals, like whether you're a parent, you're in a relationship, you want to, you're running a company, you're a startup. I think everybody can really benefit from being more, um, in touch with and, um, maybe self-regulated, um, in the way that we've been describing and really unhitching, if you will, unhitching that need for external validation and being able to fill, you know, our filleth our own, you know, our own cup filleth over from, you know, from, from within. And, um, the book comes out, I believe it's September 26th. It is called energy rising, the neuroscience of leading with emotional power and leading. I think, you know, as you mentioned, you know, this is, this is the leader in the house. This is the parent, this is the parental role. This is the, you know, leading as a, you know, a, a figure in a relationship that's very important to you, It can be again, CEO or, or intrapreneur entrepreneur, whatever it is. Um, Thank you for writing this book. And thank you for this conversation today. I know I learned a lot in just preparing for our conversation and in the actual conversation with you as well. You really crystallized and solidified a lot of the concepts in the book for me. So thank you. Thank you so much.
1: I'm so I honestly am so grateful for you inviting me on here, letting me kind of talk on your platform. You were a wonderful host. I always get a little bit nervous before these things, but you put me right at ease. So thank you so much.
0: Thank you.